With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code GABFEST. And by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GABFEST. And by ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 job sites with a single click and an interface that's easy to use. And right now, you can try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com GABFEST. That's ZipRecruiter.com GABFEST. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for December 18th, 2015, the Chaos Candidate Edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm the Chaos Host, John Dickerson of Slate, who is the orderly, orderly host of Face the Nation, is here. Also, I keep saying John Dickerson of Slate, but you are John Dickerson of Face the Nation. It's just, <laughs> yeah. it's like a tick. John Dickerson of Face the Nation, who is an orderly host, is here with me. Uh, in Washington, and we're in the foreign policy studios for a few weeks because our beloved Slate studio, actually totally unbeloved Slate studio, is gone while Slate moves. So this new studio is its nice. Oh, my gosh. It's incredibly nice. Your One's blo- blood pressure drops precipitously being in here. It's all the sound um, boards are this lovely linen-covered blocks on the wall. It looks almost like art where we've got some kind of nice – polished desk in front of us at uh, Swanky Digs. And in New Haven, in her own home, which is probably a Swanky Dig of some sort, is Emily... Oh, it's super swanky. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. (laughs) Hello, Emily. Hey, guys. On this week's show, we will talk about the Republican debate in Las Vegas. Who won it? Did anyone win it? Did America win it? Then we will talk about the court-martial of Private Bo Bergdahl, should he be court-martialed? Is this a fair punishment or a fair possible punishment for the soldier who was imprisoned by the Taliban for five years? Then what did we learn about politics in 2015? The three of us will ruminate, reminisce, contemplate. It will be a very contemplative third segment about the year in politics. And we'll have cocktail chatter and in Slate Plus – the politics of Star Wars. How did Star Wars influence American politics? What uh, what do we learn about politics from Star Wars? If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash Plus. We're still seven weeks out from the first voting, but the Republican presidential candidates had yet another debate, the fifth debate, I think. This was a CNN debate in Las Vegas. It was about national security, or to use the word of the night, it was about fear. Everyone is afraid All the candidates think you're afraid. They really want you to be afraid. They believe in fear. Fear is everywhere. 
This was teased as a Trump versus Cruz debate, but it turned out to be kind of a more random, somewhat less focused night, except for fear, which won the night. Emily, which candidate uh, won the evening and why? I thought that nobody outright won, but that Cruz had a good night. He was really forceful. And I thought that Trump had a good night. I mean, he was vicious. And I would like to say that maybe he went too far in being super mean to Jeb Bush. But I don't think so. I think the people who like him will just find that all the more appealing. Um, And I guess... I don't. I didn't think Chris Christie was particularly convincing or persuasive, but other people seem to. So perhaps I'll just repeat that conventional wisdom and see what you guys think. John Jeb Bush went on the attack against Donald Trump. He called him the chaos candidate. He said, "You can't insult your way to the presidency." It was the most vigorous attack on Trump, who was you know leading. He has lapped the field effectively in the polls, at least. Why did Bush do that, and why is Cruz Rubio? Carson, why are they still continuing to not engage or not attack, especially Cruz? Yeah. Well, I think we'll talk about Cruz first and then I'll talk about Jeb. Cruz thinks he's going to get the Trump voters. He said behind closed doors that he thinks Trump will fall of political gravity, will finally start. It will actually come into being, Trump having defied political gravity. He'll fall. Those voters will go to Cruz. There's some evidence to suggest that. At the moment, what's happening is all of Ben Carson's voters are falling over to Cruz. So there's no need for him to fight. Trump laid off Cruz because he'd been getting grief. Conservative radio talk show host blasted Trump for saying that Cruz was a maniac when he was in the Senate for supporting ethanol in um, in Iowa and for criticizing Justice Scalia. So he was a little bit on the defensive. And when Trump counterpunches with all the other candidates, he's not in danger of losing any voters that might ultimately come to him. Jeb Bush's voters are not thinking about, oh, is it Jeb or is it Donald? But in the case of Cruz, those voters voters are his. And he's putting himself forward as the tribune of the grassroots. And so too is Cruz. So it's a lot more tender and dangerous for him to do that. What Bush is trying to do is become the, the Donald alternative. There are a lot of people fighting for that, Rubio, Bush, Christie, and Kasich. And he wants to get in the fight so that it looks like it's the Donald versus Jeb. The reason that's tricky is because Donald's very good. And Donald Trump has been responsible in part for Jeb's decline, not necessarily because they're pulling from the same voters, but because he's made him look small and weak. So I think Bush did help himself a little by taking Trump on, but I think he helped himself in a probably a limited way. Emily, does it appear to you that any, you know, Christie, Paul, Bush, Kasich, any of them has a chance to supplant Rubio as the leading non-Trump, non-Cruz candidate? I don't think so, but I didn't think Rubio had a particularly good night. I mean, partly it wasn't his fault. He was easy to go after on immigration in that context with those candidates and for Republican voters, and that made him seem, I mean, he seemed principled in the sense that he was explaining why he wasn't a super extremist on the issue, but he was a little bit lackluster. But I just feel like the alternatives are no better or worse. So if I was giving money or voting, I would probably stick with him as the alternative to Trump. What did you guys think? When I was out in Iowa on Monday talking to some folks out there with the various campaigns or Republicans who are in politics but not affiliated at the moment, they were hoping, the ones who are kind of looking for a mainstream candidate, they were really hoping that Rubio would use the debate to kind of set himself apart from that pack that includes Rubio, Christie, Bush, and Kasich. The problem now for the mainstream folks is that the the, the non-Trump Cruz vote is too split. So they were hoping Rubio would come out and they, the mainstream 
voter could coalesce around that one guy. The problem after this debate is not only did Rubio have his weakest debate performance of the three, I don't think it was a disaster, but he did much better in the previous two debates. But the problem is by Jeb Bush doing well in the debate relative to his previous performances and Christie doing well, it means now the vote is split and the others are looking better than they were before, which splits it more if that if that works out. Um, so you the, the race kind of continues along. I, the reason I agree with you, Emily, on Trump is that the entire debate was basically focused around contests of strength, with the exception of Rand Paul, who was not participating in that, where everybody was trying to boast about how strong they are. If the debate is fought on that turf, Trump wins, because that's his turf. That's what he's sold Republican voters that he is. He's the toughest, the strongest out there, and they have in polls shown that that's what they believe. In previous debates, he hasn't done very well. He's kind of disappeared when it gets into a, a policy discussion, but in this one, it was all, you know, he was perfectly at home. Well, John, when you were out talking to voters in Iowa, I was talking to to liberals in Brooklyn. <laughs> and their views are very different. Let me tell you that. What I don't understand about the establishment candidate position, which now encompasses sort of Kasich, Bush, Rubio, Christie, that's just still a really surprisingly small set of voters in the polling. It's still what? It's still maybe 25% of the voters. How did that group diminish so rapidly. I mean, the Republican Party, clearly there's a, like a grassroots anger, which is animating lots of people, but all those Main Street Republicans didn't die. <laughs> right. Well, I think you have a couple of things that are going on. One is that Iowa is driving the bus a little bit here, and Iowa is a more conservative. The participants in the caucus process in Iowa are more conservative than the participants in the New Hampshire primary. And the people who participate in caucuses and primaries are more conservative than the larger group of Republicans. So, we're all talking a lot about Iowa, so it's the conservative of the conservative. When we get to New Hampshire, that vote, that non-Trump Cruz vote is bigger in New Hampshire. And then, of course, it gets bigger in places like Michigan and Ohio and so forth. It's just that the process is dominated early by Iowa, South Carolina, and then a bunch of southern states, which tend to be the more conservative portion of the Republican Party, which makes it feel like the establishment is really out, out of the picture. So Emily, there's this weird game theory problem. Maybe it's a tragedy of the commons problem going on around Trump, which is that, as John outlined, Cruz doesn't want to attack Trump. It's a no candidate unless a truly desperate shrinking candidate's interest to attack Trump because your goal is to be the last candidate standing against Trump. And therefore, you have to let it go. Also, it's not clear that anyone can effectively do it. But is there a point at some point in the next five weeks, seven weeks, where they all have to, they all collectively decide they all have to go after Trump. I don't think that'll happen in the next four or five weeks. I mean, isn't the game theory that everyone will scramble for the other pieces of the pie and we'll have the early contests and we'll see if one or two people come out ahead and leave the rest of the pack behind. And like, say it's Cruz and Rubio. And then Cruz and Rubio, will they'll turn on each other, but then you'll see them come out with the knives for Trump. Like Cruz, who totally laid off Trump, I mean, it almost seemed like they had a deal, will come after him. And then we'll see that. Well, this is what's going to make this so fun and exciting. Because it's it's up in the air. There are so many different scenarios. By the time I was done on my reporting trip, to Iowa Monday and Tuesday. I couldn't keep track of all the different scenarios because there's this one scenario is, is Trump loses in Iowa, comes in second. 
Cruz comes in first. So then the winner, the candidate who's running as the winner, isn't the winner anymore. And what does that do? How much does that destabilize him? The most interesting story coming out of Iowa could be who's in third. In 1996, Lamar Alexander came in third in Iowa. And he was a and big it propelled story. him to the presidency. Well, wait, ooh, wait. But it was a big story coming out of Iowa because you had Dole, Dole Buchanan and then like, oh, hey, here's this guy who's possible, a possible sort of mainstream alternative to Buchanan. Maybe he'll catch fire. He didn't. Um, but for a moment... So you could imagine – let's imagine Chris Christie comes in third in Iowa because he's doing well for the moment or doing better for the moment in New Hampshire. That news kind of filters out to Iowa. In Iowa, the mainstream folks who are looking for candidates say, OK, we're going to rally behind Christie. He does well enough to come in third there. Well, nobody was really expecting that. He's now kind of considered perhaps the establishment alternative. Everybody says, geez, Louise, we really got to do something about Trump and or Cruz. We're all going to rally behind Christie. Now – just replace Christie with Rubio, and that same scenario could happen. So there are a bunch of different uh, – and, you know, the other alternative is Trump wins Iowa, surprisingly. I don't think anybody there thinks he's going to win it now. So he wins Iowa, and suddenly that's a real blow to Ted Cruz. Um, and then it's really all about two separate primaries. You've got New Hampshire, which will be a battle for the establishment person, and then Trump and Cruz will spend – well, Cruz, anyway, will spend a lot of time down in South Carolina. Can I just make a comment about the substance of the debate, something that, that disturbed I wanted to talk about substance, too. How thrilling. Well, I wanted to talk about something that just disturbed me. It disturbed me. So the tenor, it's really more the tenor than the substance. The tenor of the debate was very angry, very fearful, very alarmist, very much about American danger. Barack Obama's put you in danger. The country, you should be afraid. There are these terrorists everywhere. There are terrorists are coming. And- Fear without specific action that someone can take to allay that fear or to do something is one of the worst things you can do to somebody. It's like it's, I've learned this as almost as a, as a management technique. There's no worse way to manage people than to make them scared and terrified but not give them any, anything positive that they can work towards that will have accomplishment. I think what the Republican candidates are doing here is, is genuinely baleful and dangerous for the republic. I understand their political reasons. I understand that that's what candidates who are out of office have to do is they have to portray that whatever's happening is disastrous, but I think this particular way of doing it is really it's really dangerous to the country. Yeah, and it was also I mean every question it was all about out toughing each other. So Cruz calls for carpet bombing, then you think like maybe Jeb Bush is going to point out that's not such a great idea. No, no, he just like makes says a slightly milder version. I did think, though, that buried in all of the um, cowboy talk was this really interesting exchange looking back over the last 10 years of American policy where Trump suddenly sounded like the liberal Democrat that neither Obama nor Clinton can be when he said, like, we completely blew it by spending four to five billion dollars. We we should have invested it in our own bridges and roads and like not bothered to completely screw up the Gulf and the Middle East. And then Rand Paul got in there with that. And then even Cruz had this argument he was making in favor of Gaddafi and Assad that you actually could have extended even to Saddam Hussein, this like pro strongman argument. Actually, David, you sometimes make yeah. that argument. I make that. That's a plot's argument. Yeah, I was I was excited. I was excited that Donald Trump – the problem with Donald no. Trump is that he doesn't actually believe – I mean that was he, – he simply says whatever's in his head at that instant. There's no principle. Right. I mean it was crazy. He was arguing these two things that were completely opposed to each other. 
just bomb the shit out of ISIS and all of Syria. Who cares that there actually are living human beings in these cities versus we just wasted all this money and tried to fix something that we don't know how to fix. Right. And I would add to the contradiction is that he not only wants to bomb the cities indiscriminately, but he also wants to kill the families of the terrorists. So he was participating in the strongman competition at the highest possible level while simultaneously saying... George Bush shouldn't have had to shouldn't have tried to be the strong man back right. in the old days. There was yeah. I also would just like to uh, agree with what David said about the lack of substance behind the fear mongering. I mean, it was clear that everybody there was trying to excite fears. I really noted. I really saw this because I watched it with my kids, and I started to hear it through their ears. And what happens when you have kids and they're terrified? You try to comfort them with specificity and control. And there were no, you know, even Jeb Bush, who says, I laid out a plan. His plan is not so vastly different than what the president is doing. Now, he can say the president is doing it poorly and I do it well. That's a perfectly reasonable argument. But with the exception of, say, Lindsey Graham, maybe even a little of John Kasich, who are calling for actual boots on the ground, which is a a specific recommendation the president isn't exactly following, which is to say he does have boots on the ground. He just doesn't have as many as those guys want. Other than that, you're right, David. These are relatively vague prescriptions that are not too different from what the the president is actually doing. Um, And I'd say one other thing, and I wonder what you guys think about it, which is that, that there are a lot of people who are decrying Donald Trump's vagueness, his lack of attention to the facts, his comments as he repeated again about the the families of the 9-11 hijackers leaving the country beforehand, which has been fact-checked to be proven to be incorrect many, many different times. If campaigns are constantly fought on the grounds of my loudly proclaimed simple solution will obviously work when the idiot who's in office is a fool, that's been the way Barack Obama campaigned that way. I'm going to get out of Iraq and, and Afghanistan. It's going to be easy. It's going to be done. Now he's involved in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya. Turns out the world's a little bit more complicated than he said. Certainly George W. Bush made a lot of promises that turned out it was more complicated than they said. Since we campaign in simplistic terms, in terms of solutions, and the grievances are huge, since that's always the case, why is Trump that much more of a departure? He's actually just a pretty small departure. He's more simplistic in the things that he claims. But it's not like candidates who are running for office offer these like 20-point plan detailed plans for how they're going to make solve things. Well, th- that's not true. They usually do. There's usually some poor schlub in the policy shop whose job is to prepare the 20-point plan. We've all known them. We went to college with those people. But I they, don't think I think that Trump is a human being. He lives and breathes. He speaks the English language. He, you know, he is he, in that sense he's very much like all the presidential candidates who've come before. But he is a standard deviation further <laughs> off of. than even uh, very conservative or very populist well, candidates of the past. But I mean, I mean this in this one specific way. I'm not doubting, yes, he's a different kind of candidate than we've seen in many different ways. But I'm saying specifically on policy. I mean, candidates, they make the solution to whatever problem they've identified seem incredibly easy. And that's been a traditional thing in campaigns for a long time. And Donald Trump has just come up with an even greater way to make it seem easy. But it's not like people have ever been encouraged for saying, here's my solution, and it's going to be really difficult and complicated. Nobody. I mean, the last person who tried to do that was Walter Mondale when he said, your taxes are going to go up to fix this problem. And he was it was considered one of the great gaffes in campaigns. But, John, isn't there a 
a difference between making things seem sweeping and simple in a debate when you're talking and you have 30 seconds and then not having anything in the form of a detailed policy proposal or even like a semi-detailed proposal to back it up off camera? I mean, Trump has several different challenges. On immigration, he's got a more detailed plan than some of the people he's running against. On um, now, you may think it's crazy, but it has elements to it. I mean, yeah, he has, I've looked at that. So, I know what you're so talking about. In that sense, in that sense, he has details. I guess what I'm talking about, though, is the notion that is constantly sold to voters that the solution's going to be easy, and that the guy who's in the office right now is just a bumbling idiot. And when I get there, I'm going to be able to do these incredibly big and complex things easily. And since that is the general way candidates run, it seems like Trump, who's absolutely a departure for lots of different ways, but in the specific sense of policy, Trump is just doing a better version of what candidates have been doing before, which is selling super simplistic solutions and basically asserting that they'll be great and people are buying it. Is the next debate yours, John? No, there are a couple before the CBS debate in uh, in, the the 13th of February. All right. Let's hear from our first sponsor. GapFest is sponsored this week by Stamps.com. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. The traffic, the parking, the post office packed with everyone mailing holiday gifts and packages. So use Stamps.com instead. You can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during the busy holiday season. And everything you would do at the post office, you can do right from your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. You can print postage for any letter or package the instant you need it, and then your mail carrier picks it up. It's easy and it's convenient. And we have a special offer for GabFest listeners. If you sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code GABFEST, you'll get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer, which includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GabFest. The U.S. Army in the form of General Abrams announced this week that Bo Bergdahl would face a court-martial that could sentence him to life in prison if he is found guilty. This was a surprising announcement because an earlier investigation by the Army's chief investigator, General Dahl, had recommended a lesser tribunal, a tribunal that would have had a punishment that was at most one year a one-year-in-prison punishment or one-year-in-the-brig or whatever the correct army term is, as a consequence of uh, Bergdahl's desertion in Afghanistan, desertion which, of course, led to his capture by the Taliban, his him being held for five years under ghastly, unspeakable conditions, and then ultimately traded for five Taliban fighters that the U.S. was holding at Guantanamo. So there are a number of issues that have come up around this Bergdahl court-martial, the Oh, and I should mention, of course, you're a podcast listener. You know this, that the legendary podcast Serial is now focusing its second season on Bergdahl, what happened to him. And uh, the first episode of that show aired last week, suspiciously right before the Army announced that it would court-martial Bergdahl. So did Bergdahl desert? Were six soldiers in Bergdahl's unit and related units killed as a result of the search for him? As some of Bergdahl's critics claim, did... Bergdahl's comments to filmmaker Mark Bowl, and now now these comments, which are now the heart of the podcast serial, that those comments encouraged the army to act more harshly to, to him. Did the loud noises of John McCain and various others who were threatening investigations of Bergdahl 
is not punished. Did that play a role in the army pursuing this? So are you guys listening to Serial? I should ask first. Well, this is... I listened to the first episode. Yeah, and the second and it... episode isn't out, or it wasn't out at the time I looked, which was a couple hours ago. And is that your intention to... Was that the way you listened to the first Serial? Yes. Serially? Serially. See, because I listened to the first one... Uh, in bulk. Like nine hours straight, Yeah, right? basically, I listened to the first... Well, actually, it hadn't ended. I, I was like the last... And the the agony waiting for the last episode, I listened to basically all of the episodes but the last one, and the agony of that week is still fresh upon my mind. Oh. And therefore, I don't know that I could repeat that every week. This will be very different because uh-huh. there's no... There's no doubt about what he did. We know that. Well, he, that's what Anne was saying. There's no, but I think there's, there's no be, tension about. No, they will what? create a it's tension. Only a they're, good story, they're good storytellers. They will find tension. There was no tension. There will be tension, but man, did I feel less sympathetic to him after listening to that first episode. Did you guys have that reaction? Well, John, you didn't listen, right? Well, so, I didn't listen because I'm uh, maintaining this um, weird behavior. Yeah, well, purity. I had less sympathy. I mean, he did something incredibly stupid. He was. He was a incredibly stupid. I actually, and... It was more than that to me. I, I felt so maybe this is partly because I hadn't been following the story that closely, but he, his claim, we should say, is that he was very concerned about the leadership on his base in his, what, platoon squadron. I can't remember what the right word is. He thought that people were in that, you know, the, that the soldiers he was serving with were in danger and that he was going to walk off the base and walk 20 miles to this other base as a way of getting an audience with the, the commanding general so he could convey his concerns. Apparently, the army investigator believed him about this, but just thought he was deluded about the failure of leadership. I guess I kind of believed him, but I also thought it was so crazy and misguided that unless he was mentally ill when he was doing all of this, I was just horrified. It just seems so obvious that the minute he walked off the base, the other people he was serving with were going to be in more danger rather than less. Like that he would have realized that their whole mission was going to turn into having to try to find him. And it just seemed breathtaking in its level of irresponsibility. Right. It was clearly irresponsible and stupid. He's a narcissist who doesn't Think clearly about the rest of the world and and what impact his actions has on have on other people. Definitely, that is all. That's all true. And he didn't pursue official channels. There were all sorts of ways he could have complained about the things that he was upset about, which he didn't complain about. But the, so right. the question is: Given all that, should his huge suffering, which he certainly had, he certainly endured as a result of his capture, should that play any role? in whether or not he's court-martialed. So I feel like it should play a large role in determining the punishment for him. I mean, the idea that this person... Right? I don't think he should go back into army... I feel like he has done his time. But I actually felt that a full court-martial was the right way to go because I think the... The outrage against him within the military seemed justified to me, and I feel like the full airing and the taking his desertion, what seemed to me to be desertion, completely seriously and, like, not giving him a free pass by letting him off with a lesser procedure, that started to seem totally justified to me. Is there a um, greater weight to be given in military justice for the effect punishment has on those soldiers still serving than we would give in... The wider public. You mean the sort of like setting an example? Precisely, yeah. Yeah, I kind of think maybe that's true. What do you guys think? I assume that's a principle written into the Code of Military Justice that, in fact, 
a lot of these punishments are designed for exactly that purpose. The, the, the people are shot for desertion is bizarre. The only reason you would shoot someone for desertion, if you shoot somebody, you, you know, they've, they're no longer any value to you as a soldier. It's, you shoot them because— They're a greater value to you as a symbol. They're a greater a value as a symbol because you're trying to send a message to all your other soldiers. It, clearly, that's, the, that's how military punishment works. And the, the message is deterrence, but I think it's also not simply deterrence. It's also fairness, right? It's also like right. in this case that, I mean, everyone else was sticking it out under these like rotten conditions and then being sent off on a lot of a lot of engagements to try to find this guy. Or even if they weren't directly trying to find him, it just seemed like his disappearance changed the whole. There were so many dom, domino effects in the region. And. In reading about the six soldiers who were killed subsequent to his uh, disappearance that have been this question of like whether he, his disappearance caused their deaths, it seemed to me like, no, they didn't directly, he didn't directly cause their deaths, but I could really see why indirectly people who served with him felt like there was a connection. Do you guys think he was a moron to cooperate with Serial? Even, even though he's not cooperating directly, he cooperated with his filmmaker, Mark Bowl, who's interviewing him for a potential movie, and then Bowl seems to have brought this to Serial, although although Bergdahl, I guess, gave permission, somehow must have given permission for these tapes to be used. I thought he was crazy to have really? given permission. Why? I really did. David, did you feel this way listening to the tape? I mean, I had so much less sympathy for him because his explanation seemed either nonsensical or totally narcissistic. And, and like he was just being so rash with other people's lives and safety. Well, if he's narcissistic, then... We have our answer for why he participated in the with the filmmaker and to serial. I was just thinking that if you felt like you were being or going to be railroaded, or if you felt like public relations was so stacked against you that maybe getting your word, getting getting your side of the story out in some fashion would do something to maybe help even out the public relations but balance. Um, I don't know how anyone who'd ever served in the army could possibly think that this. This would benefit you. I mean, he he got absolutely terrible like, advice. This is amazing. Right, right. You mean benefits you in terms of your ultimate uh, play in the sympathy? I mean, it's true that it humanizes him, but it humanizes him in a way that made me horrified by right. Him. But it, but if you're in his head, could you imagine him thinking, you know, I'm never going to get my story out. This is going to happen in a military context in which everybody's against me, the country's against me. Like I need to do something to elevate my. My image and status. I think it was crazy. And I can't believe the timing's a coincidence. I don't believe the military about that. If I was listening to that and I had some responsibility for this, or I mean, I just feel like he he just like ganked everyone's chain. John, your your point about is this a way to, you know, get your story out in a way you couldn't? Yeah. I mean, I think if you were being tried in civilian court for something similar, I could understand why this might be a, a high risk high reward play to do it in the millet context of the military, which does not take the shit lightly, which doesn't like people who are yeah. putting themselves above the institution just right. seems like folly at the highest order. And I actually, I hope we learn what the process of the seduction of Bo Bergdahl was about what it is that Mark Bowl did to get him to talk. Because I, if they did not give him, you know, like the, the filmmaker equivalent of Miranda warning, they should feel really terrible because because this guy is he he's just made a, a terrible mistake in his life 
and it's you know Mark Bowl will benefit and Syria will benefit, but but this guy is not going to benefit from Don't it. Don't you assume that he sold his life rights to them, and there's a big financial stake in his cooperation, which doesn't explain why he gave them permission to give the tapes to Serial right now. But as I was listening, I was thinking, I really hope that at least you're getting paid for the well, fact that you're hurting yourself. How's that work, Emily? The life I don't rights. Really What's know the John works? Wayne well, Gacy? Well, isn't there? Wasn't there? Isn't there a famous? Was That's it John Wayne Gacy or somebody who? Yeah, who tried you to can't ben- profit can't from your your crime. Uh, yeah, I'm and not then sure I wonder would... if in the military there's a different standard than in regular. Yeah, justice. it's not a crime in the criminal sense in the same way, is it? It's the Uniform Military Code of Justice. That's I don't a know. Crime. If it's the same. Isn't that a crime? You're not a. Felon I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, I don't know anything about. That. It's just like I have any inside track on this. I just felt like I cannot. Ima- he <laughs> he should be getting paid because otherwise, like, it's just even crazier. Would you do you guys think it's if you were the producers of Serial or you were Mark Bowl, a filmmaker, it's a great get, right? But would you I can't would you blame do the story? This. Yeah. He's an adult, yeah. he has yeah. a lawyer, yeah. he has Absol- counsel. Uh, yeah. I don't hold, I don't lay this at their feet. Also, like I'm not even sure that in the name of justice that we shouldn't know all of this and that he should be court martial. You know, it's not clear to me that there's if you take a step back from him and his particular fate, I don't feel like this podcast doing a disservice to the world. Yeah. What do you think? You would have published this. Yeah, no, of course. You would have published it. I but I I just really hope that someone that someone gave him a talking to. It's true. He is an adult. Yes, he is an adult. On the other hand, he's an adult who has spent five years in prison. Who knows how it has screwed up his mind? And I don't think he is. I certainly think it would be pretty unfair to go to this guy barely, you know, several months after captivity of the worst captivity anyone's ever endured and then extract information from him, which which is going to be hugely harmful to him in his criminal trial. Yeah. Good. Good topic. Let's move on to our next sponsor, Harry's.com. Fellas, skip that trip to the drugstore you were going to make to buy way overpriced razors. Harry saves you time and money by delivering high-quality shaving supplies to your door for a fraction of the drugstore price. I am a Harry's user. I love Harry's. I have a beautiful orange Harry's razor. One of my rituals I think I've mentioned is when I get home on Wednesday night for my weekly trips to New York and my beard has kind of grown out. I take my Harry's razor in the shower, my Harry's shave cream, and just remove all the extraneous bits of beard. It's extremely satisfying. I love the razor. I love the handle. I love the shave cream. And Harry's.com was started by two guys who are passionate about creating a better shaving experience for all men. Not only does Harry's provide a superior shave, but their starter kit is just $15 and shipping is always free. So go to Harry's.com now Get $5 off your first purchase with the code GABFEST. And after you use this code, you can get an entire month's worth of shaving for just $10. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. And enter promo code GABFEST at checkout. For our third topic, we're going to get, it's going to be kind of an encounter session here. We're going to get a little bit deep. 2015 was a strange year in politics. We're going to talk about what we learned from it. It was very confounding. There were... I sort of mentally made a list of a few things in no particular order. Biden's flirtation with running for president, rise of Bernie Sanders, the defenestration of John Boehner, the continued Republican rise in state legislatures, the Black Lives Matter, politicization of campuses. Freddie Gray was this year. And of course, there was Donald Trump. So we're going to talk about what, if anything, we have learned about politics as a whole from this year. 
I, I mean, I'll start by saying that I think this has been one of the grimmest years I can ever remember. <laughs> and I think it's just taken us, as much as, John, you talk about Trump's similarity to other candidates, I think it is alarming that we now have this nationalist, right, nativist candidate and that that is driving one of the two parties in this country in a way that we have not had in our lifetime. And I don't 100% know why this force, which has been sort of contained until now, is suddenly so powerful. Was it really contained, though? It was out there and people believed the things that they believed and they are now finding a vehicle for those beliefs. But I guess what – and again, don't, don't misunderstand me on Trump. There are ways and places in which he is going that we've not seen ever. And I, one of the things I think is possibly hopeful out of a chaotic campaign season is that what if it in- forced people to engage with actual ideas? If there is support for the idea of banning Muslims from America and that is able to sustain a candidate and make him stronger in a party – that should be engaged with a conversation. If that were there and it was not engaged in a conversation, that doesn't seem to be healthier. Should, there should be a big, campaigns are supposed to be about big conversations. They haven't been. They've, we've had campaigns where there are big issues, nobody talks about them. So what if the chaos of the nominating process on the Republican side but, but is John, actually able to surface well, a conversation? I'm well, but John, I'm not, I'm not saying that the, that that people don't feel strongly about the Muslim issue or don't believe it. But I would, I think it is bizarre, bordering on crazy, to say that the immigration of American Muslims to the United States is one of the really critical issues of our time. I don't think that you can credibly say it's a big issue. I think you can say, you know, the questions of terrorism and national security are issues. But the actual, like the, the, immigration of, of American Muslims to this country does not seem to me to be an issue on the level of inequality, you know, sort of jobs, education, infrastructure, national security as a whole. I mean, it's, it's, it's a ginned up issue which makes people upset. But the idea that we're actually talking about this as a big issue seems to me strange. It's no, not a big right, issue. It's right. like a, it's a confected uh, rage machine. Right. Well, that's only if you were to narrow it into its most narrow um uh, definition, which you would never do, because that's not what it's just about. It's about fear that comes from terrorism. It's about fear of the other in America. It's about what America is as it goes into a future in which white Americans are diminishing in their portion of the population. It's about a situation in which you have a portion of the country that feels like it's been left out of prosperity in America. There are a lot of things that are a part of the Trump candidacy and what he is surfacing that go beyond this. So, of course, you know, keeping Muslims out would not have been number one on your – but it touches off on, on yeah, all these not, other issues. Yeah, I know. But it, but it would be – imagine if the candidate were talking instead about the inequality which has caused middle-class Americans to lose income and lower-middle-class Americans to lose income, that to talk about those issues and framing them around issues of – inequality rather than framing it around issues of other. I actually disagree with you with the, your premise that surfacing ideas and talking about ideas, no matter what they are, is that that's productive because at least we're having an honest conversation. I don't think there's such a thing as an intrinsically there, – there's not intrinsically some set of issues that Americans want to talk about 
it's a responsibility of politicians, of our leaders, to guide it towards a productive place. seems to me where Trump has taken it, he has caused people to feel anger and rage and fear that they do not need to feel, that is not necessary to feel, it's not productive to feel, and doesn't actually help them in the solutions to the real problems in their lives. Well, and that's not a, that, to me, is not a valuable thing to do. It seems to me a, a, like a, a genuinely vicious thing to do, and it isn't a conversation we should have. So how would you stop that conversation in our current system? Yeah, as I'd, a person who's a, such a fan of the First Amendment, yeah, and no, thinks it's, that being able to say things I, is a be, is a good. Yeah, no, but you, here's so you'd here's, like to limit the things. No, that no, are being I, said. I think you're, you you get at exactly what is so troubling. What is so troubling is that we are a country where, in fact, we have a free press, and the free press is entitled to say what it wants. Where candidates are entitled to say what they want, where the people, the voice of the people, is heard, and where you know we don't look kindly on elites suppressing speech, and yet that you see the consequence of when somebody takes that to its most demagogic, most vicious extreme. And it does cause a con- – I'm not denying there's a conversation going demagogic. on. But I I'm, think – but just because people aren't able to respond to a candidate who's having a certain kind of success – remember also it's important to understand the success that's, that Donald Trump is having. He's having a success in a portion of, of the Republican Party. He doesn't represent – on some of these issues, the mainstream of the or the majority opinion of the Republican Party, let alone the majority opinion of the country. So, you know, we have to keep while he's a phenomenon, he's not he's not taken over the country. Right. But isn't one question whether Trump or, you know, very uh, unfact driven right wing media is distorting this the conversation that there's a level of manipulation going on. I mean the feelings underneath that you guys have both described are very real. All these worries and concerns that certain parts of the American population have. Yes, they're all there. But then the question is like what do they get channeled into? Yeah, and not- you used the word vehicle for Trump earlier. I think he is the vehicle and he is a particularly toxic kind of vehicle. I don't know how we could have prevented it at this moment or what the antidote is, but it's, it to me, truly unsettling that that's where all of this rage has landed. You know, you could argue that the Sanders folks and the Trump folks have some overlap. The reality of income inequality and the damage that's doing and stagnant wages must fuel some of the passion on this on both sides. And yet it's like such a different expression of it. Right. So I'm not saying that this is the perfect thing we would have wanted to have. I'm just saying that uh, instead of thinking of it as totally depressing, there is a battle of ideas going on. It may not be a very pretty one, but there is a huge chunk of the country that is susceptible to uh, either Bernie Sanders' message or Donald Trump's message. And to the extent that they're causing argument and conversation, it may not be pretty, but all the, a lot of those feelings were sitting out there and were dormant. And I think that them being dormant is not so great either. Well, I- right, but they're bruising, wounding things the way they're being expressed. So, like, you know, Muslim kids, a couple that I know, are thinking to themselves, like, I'm not – I'm not wanted here. They want me to register. I mean, just yeah. weird no, stuff. That's like, not there good. Are actual consequences for. I, I understand that, but but what if? But my I guess my point is that there were consequences of that for sure. But if that feeling was below the surface, then there were consequences but, to but, that too. But when John, it's below I, the surface and the message is it's socially unacceptable to say those things, you don't have a major candidate, the leading candidate for the Repub- for a major party's presidential c- contest saying those things, they're different. I think there's a the, you make a mistake, John, if when you say the, the fact that people have feelings of resentment, anxiety, fear of other it, 
and those feelings are dormant, they're not being expressed, is a, that's a legitimate point that you're making. There is no definitive required path that it be channeled in the way that Trump has channeled it. The way that Trump has channeled it vastly changes how Americans think. I think if you'd polled Americans a minute before Donald Trump said Muslims shouldn't be allowed in this country and asked them, you know, should we bar Muslims from immigration, the numbers would be shockingly low. But once Trump says it and once Trump sort of expresses it, then people say, oh, yeah, you know what? I'm going to adopt this idea, an idea that they hadn't Wait, hadn't what? occurred to them. It's like the, I, the really toxic stuff in the anonymous comments on, on the internet, on whatever website, or like suddenly in the spotlight on primetime television coming out of the mouth of a supposedly mainstream candidate. That's has a really different valence to it. Yeah, but, I'm, but I mean, if, if there were a strong counterforce and that were smacked back, then, then that would be good. Let's see if right, that happens. Right. So wait a minute. But I middle. guess that's my point. That's my point. Okay. So that's what should happen. If this is such a strong value worth fighting for, then somebody should get up and say that and be that way. Right. Instead of and just yet, thinking like, oh, and yet they don't. So well, well but that's, no, they do. The well, Democrats do. do. The, the Democrats the are not the having a campaign. Election. So I mean, so then if my point is that if you have a battle of ideas but, and somebody wins that battle of ideas, that's but good. Also, you have John, to get out there also, and say what you also, believe. Also, one of the premises of the United States and its political system is that in a battle of ideas, somehow there is the truth actually matters, that that right. not every idea, just because there is a well, Trump is battling, the, just because those battle is taking place doesn't mean that the right side, or the side that ought to win or the side that's most congruent with what Americans actually want is going to win. Yeah, and it doesn't mean that. But my point is that to have a battle of ideas is a good, is not a terrible thing and there should be an actual battle and if he's saying these things that have purchase in the country which they do although again in a limited fashion then the alternative view should stand up and rise up and do something about it well it should and yes but i feel like you have more faith than i do and i don't know what it is the system to lead to the truth or the media or like this particular moment and the way people take in information it just seems rife with potential for distortion it's very possible that people could fail and that people could not uh, force their leaders to stand up and and say things that, you know, the fa- where where the facts line up. But that's been true for a long time. Yeah, and but so being... he's such a seductively powerful demagogue, right? Like... And so people are well, you know. Then I mean, I just think to to just sort of moan about him and not and and for those who oppose him to not fight back is bad. I think moaning. Is not good, and so people should <laughs> people who are oppose him, whether it's in their whether it's in his own party or whether it's in the Democratic Party, uh, should rise up and make a, make a case, and not just rise say up. you know, and not just call him names. In the same way, I would argue that if the f- situation were reversed. Well, I want to make one final point about 2015, which we didn't haven't really talked about, which is just one of the reasons why I think there were two reasons why I think that that rising up against has not happened in the way some of us expected is one, the Democrats are basically not having an actual campaign of any significance. It's it's a very quiet campaign. And two, this was to me the year when everyone gave up on the middle in terms of votes. They're fighting to turn out their partisans. They're fighting to to animate partisans. Now, maybe this changes when we get to the general, but it feels to me like much less than in past years has the discussion of where the American middle uh, lies been discussed you know, there's a general election ahead and these ideas are going to be around for a while. I, I think you can salvage something. I think the truly horrible things that have happened in this past year have been the Charleston shooting, San Bernardino, Paris. the senseless deaths. I think that's what makes the 
How about all the police shootings? The year is so dark. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. I mean, although, you know, I mean, those are horrible. But the fact that these videos have surfaced and they seem to be surfacing everywhere seems to have shocked some people who otherwise, without that ugliness being put before them, would otherwise have thought, oh, yeah, that's a problem. But, you know. Well, right. The transparency the videos have allowed has certainly galvanized more activism and obviously Black Lives Matter. And I think the... The continuing attention to mass incarceration for me is a bright spot in the the way in which there's bipartisan interest in doing something about that. Um, all right. Now that we've stopped talking about Trump, I'm no longer interested in this topic. So <laughs> You're a part of the problem. I'm part of the problem. No, also, also no, uh, we got a deadline John, here. No, you're doing the right thing by denouncing We're... him and loudly stating your, your, your competing in the marketplace of ideas. But I am against just denouncing anyone for the sake of denouncing, I think everybody should articulate why it is that a person's ideas are being denounced in a more complete way, in the way I'm denounced for my ideas on here, which is more detailed. Because what happens is we have these conversations which people are said, oh, that's beyond the pale. And then it turns out it's not beyond the pale because people out in the country think for one way or the other that, it, you know, they're like, well, it makes sense to me. There's no like conversation. Denounce an ancient uh, river in Egypt. The GapFest is also sponsored this week by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring but not sure where to find the best candidates? As a business owner, I can tell you that your company is only as good as the people you hire. This is really true. I'm absolutely having this experience right now. That Posting your job in one place is not enough to find quality candidates. This is a conversation that we're having at my company this very week about the narrowness of your job search. When you're short-staffed, There is no time to deal with the dozens of different job sites out there until now. Thanks to ZipRecruiter.com, you can post to 100-plus job sites with a single click and be instantly matched to candidates from over 6 million resumes. Just post once, and within 24 hours, watch your candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. ZipRecruiter has been used by over 400,000 businesses. You can try it right now for free. Getting the right people for your company is important. Try ZipRecruiter and get your perfect candidate before they go to somebody else. Today, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest. Again, ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest. Now for cocktail chatter. When you are contemplating your 2015 on the porch of Shea Dickerson, John, what are you going to be drinking and chattering about? Well, when I was um, doing the most recent uh, episode of Whistle Stop on the election, great of episode, by the way, thank enjoying you. it a lot. Thank you. There's a lot. There's a lot in the election of 1840. Anyway, I found out or discovered two fun facts. One, the first picture of the moon, the full moon, was captured in 1840, which seemed early to me. Yeah, you said that. That uh, was so random when you said that. I know, but here's why that is important to me. Because um, one of the things that took place in the election of 1840 is the birth and blossoming of newspapers, the penny press, so it became a lot cheaper for everybody to have a newspaper. And as we know, and it's a part of our conversation in, in politics today and why the conversation might be as skewed as David thinks it is, because everybody gets money by telling the most sensational stories. So in 1835, when the beginning of the penny press sort of came into its roaring opening, the New York Sun ran six articles about life on the moon that were attributed to Sir John Herschel, who was one of the best-known astronomers of the time. The articles described these fantastic animals, uh, bison, goats, unicorns, bipedal tailless beavers, bat-like winged humans. 
And it was supposedly discovered, and the, the central part of this article was because there was an immense telescope of an entirely new principle that had been figured out that could see all of these things going on in the moon. Um, it turns out, of course, that this was a total hoax, but the, the circulation of the New York Sun shot through the roof, totally not fact-based behavior, massive increase in circulation. Then when the sensational story was debunked, by the way, like to end the series, they said basically what had happened is the telescope broke because of the burning glass of observation. They made up some like phony story for how it broke. Anyway, when it was debunked, Everybody still kept buying the sun anyway, so it did great for the uh, the New York Sun's numbers. And it turns out in the end, they're not quite sure who the author was. Author was it may have been this guy Richard Locke, and he may have done the whole thing not just to raise circulation numbers, but to ridicule some of the astronomical theories out there, which were truly astronomical. Um, which were which did include there was a theory by this guy Reverend Thomas Dick. He was known as the Christian philosopher, and he had computed that the solar system contained twenty one point nine trillion inhabitants. I'm not sure by what calculation he came to this, but he came to this calculation, and it was popular enough that it needed lampooning. And in his calculation, the moon would contain four trillion inhabitants. And he wasn't such a nut. Ralph Waldo Emerson was a believer. It wasn't just in his any theories. Tom Dick or Harry. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so. Go check out The Moon Hoax of 1835 at a newspaper near you. All right. Ibaz, what's your chatter? I was looking at Longform's list of best long reads in 2015, and I found a story I somehow missed in The Atavist by Matthew Scher called Whatsoever Things Are True. It's super complicated. I'm only about halfway through, but I'm completely immersed in it. Um, it's about a, a wrongful conviction, the overturning of one person's death sentence and having someone else confess to the crime, but then having that person also go free. And it's um, caught up in the story of David Protest, who's the really interesting but controversial professor at Northwestern who runs a kind of investigative journalism class that is has been embroiled in various tangled cases. And I think this must be the key one that set off a lot of alarms, although I haven't gotten that far into the story to figure that out. But anyway, um, I recommend this. Whatsoever Things Are True in the Atavist by Matthew Scher. All right. My chatter. I am reading a book, um, which I recommend to everybody. I read it as a kid. I was at my parents' house and saw it on my childhood bookshelf and picked it up and thought, wow. So I'm a, I'm a bit of an Anglophile. I went to school in England and uh, romanticize England. And it's a book called To Serve Them All My Days. Do you know this? Which no. was then turned into a miniseries. So it's a story of a World War I vet, Welsh, named David Powlett Jones, who, fictional, who goes to a school in England and a, a boys' boarding school and sort of recovers and then spends his life at this boarding school. And it's just about what life is like at a British boarding school throughout the early and mid-20th century. And it's just beautiful and romantic and it's a lot about manliness and but it's but it's very humane uh, and it was turned into a really good miniseries i think i must have seen it as a miniseries and then read the book i recommend to serve them all my days our intern is elbiscard church i don't know where she is she's not here she's in california she's in california our producer is jocelyn frank andy bowers is the executive producer of slate podcasts the Gabfest is part of the panoply network check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply our show page is slate.com slash gabfest our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. 
you can find us by searching for Slate Political Gab Fest in the iTunes store. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We, our next two weeks of shows are special shows. So pay attention to our Christmas show and then our New Year's show. They're both going to be cool. During this presidential election season, how can you shine when the conversation turns to politics? By listening to the Panoply Network's full lineup of political podcasts. There's Podcast for America with MSNBC's Alex Wagner, the campaign history show Whistle Stop with John Dickerson, The Weeds, a deep dive into policy with boxes as recline, and the granddaddy of political podcasts, Slate's Political Gab Fest. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 